know, it is often said that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And it's often, most naturally, almost subconsciously, that we imitate people that we admire, right? Uh, a few, uh, last week, our three-year-old went dark, okay? She kind of went missing in the house. Now, when a three-year-old goes dark, you know, you, you know that the results are probably catastrophic. When the three-year-old goes into stealth mode, everybody in the house, there, there's a hush that comes over the house that is a bit terrifying, right? As the, as the search is on. And that's what happened at my house last week. And so uh, Sarah went missing and we realized that she was a bit quiet uh, for our comfort. And so we begin to look for Sarah and Megan finds her. And she finds her in the bathroom. And that's even more terrifying because there are things in the bathroom that you just, you know that you just don't want the three year old to, to have right like you just want her to have access to and she finds her and when she turns and looks at her her face is I mean like whoa you know and she says Sarah what are you doing and she says I'm putting on my makeup mommy I'm putting on my makeup mommy. And, uh, I mean, we got lipstick going down. I mean, we got the, we got the blush. And the, we got, the, we got the, the, the works. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and, and, you know, the fine motor skills are not what you would like for them to be at, at this point in, in, Sarah's, in Sarah's life. And so, you know, coloring in the lines were not there yet. And so certainly hitting the lips exactly just right, not there yet. And so, you know, like, whoa. And, uh, and so, but, but why is it that Sarah conceived of the idea of putting on makeup at three years old? Because that's what mom does, right? That's what mom does. And mom is her hero. Mom is like just below Minnie Mouse in Sarah's world. I mean, there, there's Minnie Mouse and there's mom. And since every day mom puts on makeup and she watches mom put on makeup, then that's what I need to do. That's what I aspire to do. I aspire to be like my mom and aspiring to be like my mom, I watch my mom do this. And so this is obviously if I want to be like her and I want to be where she is and do what she does and become like she is, then I, I need to do that. And so Sarah, having observed her mom, wanting to emulate her mom, she put on makeup like her mom. One of the things that I usually get home a little bit later than my family every day. So usually Megan and the girls are home when I get home every day. And occasionally I come into the kitchen and it's like I come into the kitchen and there's these three Russian dolls. You know what I'm talking about? So you, you send the Russian dolls where, you know, you have the one and then the little one that's a little bit smaller and the one that's a little bit smaller and they're all the same thing, right? Uh, so, so like occasionally I come into the kitchen, it's like there's these three little Russian dolls and they all have on their little aprons or uh, severing, uh, Sarah calls it her up and on, uh, you know, and, and so they all have on their, their three little aprons and they're all covered on in, in, uh, in flour and the amount of flour that's on them usually like decrease or increases in the age, you know, like, like Megan has on a little bit less, and uh, Gracie has on a little bit more, and Sarah has on a lot more, uh, you know, flour on her, and they give me the same little kiss, you know, but you, you go into the kitchen, and it's like you have these three little Russian dolls in there, and they're standing up, and you know, like Sarah stand up on her little stool in the kitchen, and they're like making their, the supper together, and you know, but you see them, and you can tell that you have Sarah and you have Gracie, and they're, they're, they're emulating the mannerisms, and they're emulating the, the, the actions, and they're emulating all of the, the different things down to a T of what Megan does. Why? Because they have deep admiration for her. Megan is the hero in their life, the hero 
in our home. And they want to do what she does, even on a subconscious level, even in ways that they don't know why they want to do it. They see her. She's on a pedestal for them, and they want to be like her. So they do what she does. And so what Paul is going to do for us this morning is Paul is going to take this powerful illustration that all of us understand and what all of us have witnessed in healthy families and what all of us realize in healthy homes. And Paul is going to hold this up for us in the kingdom of God. And Paul is going to hold this up for us in our relationship with God. And Paul is going to say that in in our walk with God himself, this is what it's supposed to look like for the children of God. That for the children of God, that our admiration for God and our allegiance for God and our passion for God is to build in us a desire to be like Him and a desire to please Him and a desire to to be near Him so much so that we begin to emulate Him in our lives and to imitate Him in our lives because our passion is for Him. Our passion is for Him. So much so that what we're going to see is that this is why Christ came. This is why Christ came. This is why the baby was born. That the baby was born not only to set for us a pattern of emulating God, a pattern of imitating God, but Christ came for to set us free from the penalty of our sin and to give us the power so that it would be possible for us to imitate God. So that we as sinners would be set free from our rebellion from God and at the same time be empowered so that now where we were formerly imprisoned and oppressed and not capable of doing, we would be set free and now empowered to be able, quite able to do. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to chapter 5 of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. We're just going to read two verses together today. You get to chapter 5 of Ephesians, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? If you're not sure where that is, you have the four Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have Acts. You have Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. And then you have Galatians, Ephesians. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 5. Alright, beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Alright, now, as good students of the Bible, there's a word there right at the beginning that's really important as we study the Bible together. There's there's a word right out of the gate there that's telling us something key. And anytime you're studying the Bible, it's a word that you really need to key in on. It's the word, therefore. It's the word, therefore. You know, I was telling John that anytime you see the word therefore, you always want to say, Why, what is the word therefore, therefore, all right? The word therefore is always telling you to look back, look back to what is just said, okay? Look, at, look back to what is just said. So, so in other words, Paul is saying, based on what I've just said, based on what I've just told you, therefore, this is what I'm now telling you. Therefore, this is what you must now do. Therefore, this is what you must now understand. Therefore, this is what you must now, this is how you must now process that information. So in other words, what's just been said is really critical to understanding what Paul has, is, is now teaching us, what Paul is now explaining to us, okay? So let's read verses 31 and 32 together. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I think as we put this passage in context, we put chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 in context, 
I, I think there's, a, there's an immediate context, and then I think there's a, a zoomed out, big picture context. I think both of those are going to be really important for us to really get the, the power and the glory of what, what Paul is teaching us in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I think the, the zoomed in context, the immediate context, come from verses 31 and 32. Paul is talking about the relationships that they have with one another in the church in Ephesus. And he's, so he's saying, essentially, in your relationships with one another, put away malice, put away slander, put away bitterness, put away anger, put away wrath, put away clamor, put, put away these things, put away this hatred, put away this hatefulness, put away this harshness, put away this meanness. And the way you do that, forgive one another, love one another, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted to one another, be, be good to one another, be loving to one another. So, so put away the slanderous things, put away this hatefulness, put away these, this vengefulness, put away this angerness, this, this anger, and be forgiving to, to, toward one another. In other words, to simplify, he goes into verse 1 and he says, in other words, be like God to each other. Be like God has been to you, to each other. Emulate the character of God in your relationships with one another. As God has forgiven you, forgive one another. Do you find it hard to forgive each other in the church? Do you find it hard to, to not be angry when you've been wronged in the church? Well, Couldn't God find it hard not to be angry towards you? You've lived in perpetual rebellion against Him. So be like God has been toward you, toward that person in the church. Do you find it hard to be unforgiving toward that person that has wronged you in the church? Perhaps they've profoundly wronged you. But couldn't God find it hard to be unforgiving toward you? Be like God toward them. Imitate God in your relationships toward someone else, toward those, your brothers and sisters in the church. Emulate the character of God. Imitate God. So the zoomed-in context of what, what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5 is in your relationships in the church, in the way that you treat one another, in the way that you love one another, in the way that you, in the way that you respond to crisis and conflict, in the way that you respond to being offended, in the way that you respond to being sinned against, in the way that you respond to difficulty in the church, in the relationships in the way that you respond to brokenness in those relationships, is to imitate how God has responded to you. It is to imitate the character of God. It is to imitate the loving kindness of God, to imitate the grace of God and the mercy of God. It is to imitate the forgiveness of God in those relationships. It is to imitate the character of God. It is to be the, a funnel of the goodness of God, a funnel of the love of God, a funnel of the mercy of God, a funnel of the attributes of God going through you to the brothers and sisters in the church. But you know, there are times in which we should take a speck of the bark off the tree. And we should take that, that piece of bark off the tree and we should place it beneath a microscope and we should see all the tiny little organisms on that piece of bark and we should we should, we should scrutinize those organisms under a microscope and we should learn everything that we can learn about them. And there are other times in which we should find the tallest tree that we can find on the highest mountain that we can find and we should climb to the top of that tree and we should suck in all that we can suck in from the, uh, from the expanse of that landscape and watch as the sun sets behind the mountains, right? And I think we should see that here. I think, that, I think that, that Paul is trying to connect us into a bigger picture, a broader picture to what he's trying to say in the book of Ephesians here. You see, if you go back to what he's been talking about, all the way back to chapter 2, he's been talking about, and he's been concerned with how it is that we walk. How it is that we walk. He says in chapter 2, beginning in, uh, in verse 2, he says, he says, we used to walk as those who are, in verse 1, he, we used to walk as those who were dead in our trespasses, in our sins. He says, but in verse 10, he says, but now, but now we are Christ's workmanship. 
We are Christ's workmanship. And he has prepared good works beforehand in which we now walk. In which we now walk. In chapter 4, verse 1, he starts off by saying this. He says that we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called. That you should walk now in a way that is worthy of the name of Christ. That you should walk in, the, in a way that is worthy of the, of the calling that God has placed on your life. That when people see you going down the street and people see you with your wife and people see you with your kids. When people see you at the job site and people see you at Honda and people see you at your practice. When people see you in your yard with your family and people see the way that you treat other people, when people see the way that you deal in your business dealings, they ought to say, that is a man, that is a man of God. That is a woman, that is a woman of God. When people see you at football practice and people see you at band practice, when people see you, they ought to say, that is a man or a woman of integrity. That is a young man or a young woman of integrity. That is a man or a young woman of God. I don't even believe in Jesus, but he or she really does because they are marked as being uniquely different. They walk as someone who is worthy, worthy of the name of Jesus. They look just like Jesus looked when he walked on the earth. Paul says, when you walk, you ought to walk as one who is worthy of carrying with you the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that brings conviction. That's a stunning responsibility. He says in verse 17, though, he gives a contrast. Just, just like he did in chapter 2 when he says, You used to walk as one who was dead in your sins and trespasses, but now you should walk in the good works that were pre prepared beforehand as one who was created as a, as a masterpiece in the craftsmanship of God's hand. Now in, in, in chapter 4, he's going to give another contrast. Now he says, Now you should, you should walk as one who is worthy of the name of Christ. He says, but, but you should not walk, in verse 17, that you must not walk as the Gentiles walk. As the Gentiles walk. And he's used the word Gentiles there primarily not in the ethnic sense, primarily in the sense of those who worship pagan gods. And so when we get to verses 31 and 32, what he's given there is the difference. The difference. He's saying those who slander other Christians... Those who harbor anger toward other Christians. Those who ha find it difficult to forgive. Those who harbor bitterness. Those who, those who seek out vengeance. Those are those who walk as the Gentiles walk. They are those who don't walk as those who are worthy of the name of Christ. They are those who don't walk in the way of Jesus. They are those who are, in other words not imitating Christ, not imitating God. They are those who don't look like Christ and don't look like their heavenly Father. They are looking instead like the Gentiles look. They look like the pagans look. They look like the world looks. They look like the unbelievers look. They don't look like they're worthy of Christ's name. They look like they're worthy of Apollos' name or, or Baal's name. They look like they're worthy of some pagan temple's name. They look like they should be with the prostitutes of the temples, not with the name of the Lord Jesus. They don't look like our Lord. They don't look like our Lord. They look like the world. So he's drawing this contrast. He's drawing this contrast, zoomed out in the big picture. He's saying they look like they're still dead in their trespasses, not like they are walking in the, in the good works that were prepared before him. They don't look like they're walking in a way that is worthy, worthy of the name of Jesus. No, they look like they're walking like the Gentiles walk. They don't look like they're imitating. To come into our passage this morning, they don't look like they're imitating God. No, they don't look like they're walking in the love, walking in love as Christ. Drawing this contrast in our minds. And I want you to think about what this means exactly. Because I think this is powerful, brothers and sisters. What does it mean? 
What does it mean in chapter 2? Those, those who are dead in their sins and trespasses, who are they? Who are they? Who are they? He says in chapter 1, those who are dead in their sins, those who are, those who are delivered from their sins and trespasses are those in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. They are those who are not adopted into the kingdom of God. Those are who are excluded from the promises. Those who are excluded from the family. Who are those, who are the Gentiles? Think about this. Who are the Gentiles? They are those who are not the children of the promise. They are those who are not the receivers of the covenant. They are those who are not receivers of the, revela of the revelation of God. They did not receive the, the, the promise of God. They were not the, the chosen children of God in the Old Covenant. And, and by using this language, he is invoking these thoughts into their minds. You see what he's saying? He's saying, if you are the children of God, if you are the children of God, why would you live like an orphan? Why would you live like an orphan? If God has brought you to his table, why would you live like you were hungry? If God has brought you into his house, why would you live like you were homeless? If God has brought you into his living room, why would you live like you have no home? If God has brought you and wrapped his arms around you, why would you live like you have nobody to love you? Why would you live like you have loneliness and nobody to care for you? Why would you live like you have been excluded when you have been included in the greatest kingdom on earth? Why would you live like a vagrant when you have been brought to the Why would you ride on trains begging for food and panhandling and shaking and rattling change and, and begging somebody for a, for a free meal when the king has said, come to my table and I give you the bounty of the kingdom. Come to my table and everything that I have is yours. Come to my table and you will delight not just in what I have, but everything that I have from now on. Come to my table and I give you not just the possessions of my kingdom, but the inheritance inheritance of my kingdom. Come to my table and you get not just what I have, but you get me too. You see, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, this is not just living about living, not living like an orphan. This is about living about like who you are. Living like who you are. You aren't just not an orphan. Being an orphan is the opposite of who you are. That is the anchor point of 5.1. You see that? You see that? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children. Not as children. Not as, not as reluctant children. Not as kind of children. children, beloved children. You aren't stray dogs. You aren't a box of puppies that were left out on God's lawn that he reluctantly brought into his family and grew to love over time. Do you realize that? You were sought after, ran after, pursued, desired, wanted, beloved, from eternity past to eternity future, wanted, desired, children of God. Does that mean something to you, brothers and sisters? 
Does that mean something to you? God didn't adopt them because he was obligated to adopt them or because it was necessary to adopt them. He adopted them because he wanted them. This is the thrust of the book of Ephesians. This is Paul's point to the church of Ephesus. And this is the anchor point of of 5, 1, and 2. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says that he has chosen them before the foundations of the world. Jesus comes to us, brothers and sisters. Jesus comes to Bethlehem. Jesus comes to the virgin that day riding on the donkey because God is not a reluctant father. Think about what it says in Acts 2.23. When Peter preaches at Pentecost and he says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I want you to think about that. Just just absorb that for a second. That is, God didn't sit up there on the throne, look down upon you and say, you know what, they really are pitiful. I guess we're going to have to do something. You realize that? Have you ever thought about that? Like, like, like God didn't, didn't get filled with pity for you all of a sudden and then say, all right, we are going to have to do something. You know, like, I really had hoped it wouldn't come to this. But, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, this, has gotten, this is really getting out of hand. We're going to have to do something. Let, let's go do this. Let's do it. All right, all right, son, God the son, Jesus, go, go take care of this. No. From eternity past, from eternity past, according to his, his will, according to his definite plan and his foreknowledge, Peter says that he always, his plan A was to send his son after you. His son, which the, the great council of Nicaea said was fully God, God and very God came after you because God is not a reluctant father. You weren't just some stray dog brought into the kingdom of God. Passion and desire and want to. God brought you into the kingdom of God. I thought about this. Do you know right now there are 153 million orphans in the world? Some, there are different estimates by different organizations, but the number that I found is there are some 153 million orphans in the world. And, and the, the, the closest realization that I, the, the most concrete way I have to wrap my mind around that is the Dream Center in, Orf, in, in, in Swaziland. And I've been there, y'all, and, and, and did you know that every single one of these orphans have names? They have names. Every single one of them. And every single one of them, they have, they have sparkling eyes. And they have personalities. They have things that they like and they have things that they hate. They have things that they enjoy and they have foods that they don't enjoy. They have hobbies and they have, they have, they have, they have passions. They have dreams and aspirations and goals. They have allergies. And I've, I've been to the Dream Center and, and I've been there on, on days in which I've had a kid latched onto me and when it was time to go, had to pry him off of me. And been there with our team and watched as, as there were tears coming down their face and, and begged as they, if, if they could give up their free day to come back there just one more day. And I thought about that. There are literally... Tens of thousands of these orphanages. We just have 11 kids at ours right now. So there's 153 million orphanages. And there's 11 at ours. 11. Okay? And, and, and so there are, are literally tens of thousands of these things out there. And, 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 I, and I started thinking, you know, that, that there are, are people right now, right now, right now, and, and they're ordinary people, and they're, they're normal people, and some of them love Jesus, and some of them don't love Jesus. And, 
and they're going and they're they're finding these these orphans on the other side of the world somewhere some of them and some of them not on the other side of the world and 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 they're going into the middle of these places and they're they're looking these little these little creatures in the in the eye these these little these little these little people in the eye and they're they're looking at them and they have their name and they're saying I want you to have my last name I want you to have my last name not because I'm obligated not because you're you're my responsibility not because I have to not, not because it's a necessity on my part, not, not because it's anything like that, but because I have passion for you. Because I have love for you that I can't explain. Because I have a want to. Because I have a desire. Because I, I just, I need to do this. That's what God has done for us in Christ. One to whom God has said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, accepted that mantle of ministry so that one day you might hear, this is my servant with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus has come to us because our God is not a reluctant father. Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope you see the picture. This is what Paul is trying to to drive home. That you are a beloved child and what most of us realize is that in healthy homes, and and look, I I know, like, many of you did not grow up in healthy homes. I get that. I I know. I know. And many of you did not have healthy father relationships, father-child relationships, but in in healthy homes and with healthy father-child relationships, the natural reaction in those relationships is the imitation of parents. And so what Paul is saying is that in in the relationship that you have, you have a benevolent father and an unreluctant father and a passionate father, a father that has left the throne of heaven with his own son in pursuit of you because he is only after your good and after relationship with you and in pursuit of a passion for you to be reconciled with you. So what is the natural response? What is the reasonable response? In fact, what is the rational response? It is admiration. It is exaltation. And it is imitation. It is imitation. In fact, in fact, when you think about it, think about it, that what this is the restoration of the initial design of creation. This is the restoration of the initial design of creation. Think about what happens in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. How did God, what, did, what did God say? What did God say? Let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. I want you to think about that. Out of everything in creation, God made man to imitate him. You ever thought about that? You were engineered by the hands of God. You were designed by the hands of God, by the intentions of God, to imitate God. Where you go, God is intended to go. The glory of God is intended to go. The dignity of God is intended to go. The ruling authority of God is intended to go. So much so that wherever you go, the creatures that are there are supposed to look at you and the dominion that is there and the authority that is there and the glory that is there and they are to see there and to say, wow, what a God must be that made that. Christ comes and Christ delivers you from the penalty of sin, death, grave, and hell. But Christ 
doesn't stop at the penalty of sin, but Christ delivers you not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Christ delivers you from the power of sin and the oppression of sin so that now you are able to begin living a righteous life and a good life and a holy life, a life that you were incapable of before. Now the world is able to see that you are able to begin emulating the holiness of God and the goodness of God and the righteousness of God in your life, not for reasons that are self, uh, self-promoting as they were before, but rather now so that you are God-promoting. That you're getting back. You're getting back to the initial design of creation. You're getting back to the initial intentions of God from the beginning. Getting back to your initial design. In fact, getting back to the design of what you will enjoy as a thriving human being for all creation when the new heavens and the new earth are established. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus came so that human beings could thrive in their initial roles, so that human beings who had rebelled against the glory of God, who had become enemies of the living God, could then be transformed into imitators of a holy God. Do you see this? Do you see this? See, Jesus came for the total transformation of sinners into people of holiness. So that you wouldn't walk around in anger, but instead you could walk in joy. So that you wouldn't walk around in bitterness, but that now you could walk in mercy. So that you wouldn't walk around in, 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 in utter uh, uh, vindication, but instead you could walk around in, in kindness. Well, let me ask you, which, which is a better way to live? Which one makes you live as though you are in a prison? And which one makes you live as though you have been set free? Which one brings poison to your soul? And which one makes it feel as though you are light and able to walk and run and be as though you are made new? One of those is the flesh and one of those is the spirit one of those is the old man that is being taken away and one of those is the spirit that christ has made possible that christ has brought to you that is the thrust of the new covenant that is the thrust of the new covenant Ezekiel 36 says that I am putting my spirit in you and I am going to cause you to walk in my ways. I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. Do you get that? In other words, your problem was that you could not be faithful to God. You could not be holy. But the Holy Spirit was going to come to you because Jesus came to earth. And because Jesus came to earth and the Spirit came to you, Christ was going to make you holy through the spirit and now you're going to be able to walk in obedience to the law you're going to be able to walk in obedience to god in other words you're going to be able to walk in imitation to the character of god you're going to be able to walk in imitate imitation to the goodness of god you're going to be able to walk in imitation to the attributes of god you you a sinner you a flawed man or a woman you are going to be able to represent God here on earth because of what Christ has done. You see, being a Christian, being a Christian is no more or no less becoming like God, becoming like your Father, becoming like, I don't mean becoming omnipotent, I don't mean becoming omniscient, I don't mean becoming like those things. I mean becoming holy through the power of Christ. Through the power of the risen Christ, through the goodness of the risen Christ, the goal of the Christian life, quite simply put, is to become as much like your dad as you can become. And you don't become like your dad so that your dad will love you. That, that's not the goal. Some guys have gotten squirreled off like, I'm going to become as moral as I can become so that then God will love me. But that's not the goal, right? That's legalism. It, it's, I'm going to become as much like my dad because I love my dad. Because I love my dad. You know, when I, was, when I was growing up, I knew that 
if my dad got all of his work done by 4.30, we'd go fishing. Like, like yard work and all that stuff. Like, we'd go to Car Pond, a place where we, we call the Car Pond, or we'd go to Coleman Lake, right? And so I used to just sit there and watch the clock. Like, we, we, he was in the trapping or, or fishing, and, like, that was a big deal to me, you know? And, uh, and, and I was, and people say that I have a lot of my dad's mannerisms, and, you know, I have this, like, laugh, and my dad has that, like, if, we, if I said something funny, and he, like, y'all would know, right? Y- y'all all know the Jimmy laugh, right? And uh, apparently I have something similar, uh, something, something along those lines, right? And people say that I have a lot of those things, and, and it's because I was, I developed, I had an admiration for my dad, and I wanted to be like my dad, and I wanted to spend time with my dad. And for my dad, I think a lot of those times were just wasting time. Going fishing at 4.30, I think a lot of the time he was probably, you know, like now being a dad, I'm thinking, man, I'm just tired. Like, I just want to lay down. I just want to I just want to sit down for like five seconds, right? But like for me, it wasn't wasting time. And looking back, it wasn't wasting time at all. For me, it was forging in me the character of becoming and trying to become a man of integrity, right? That's what it means to be a Christian. You see, if in your life, being a Christian is only about obtaining a a forgiveness card, and you look nothing like your dad, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You don't know your father. You don't know your dad. If you have no desire to be with him, and no desire to know him, and no desire to spend time with him, you don't know him. You You haven't met him. You haven't delighted in Him. You haven't enjoyed Him. Oh, but brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, if you've met Him, and you want Him, and you want to know Him, and you you won't waste time with Him, you'll spend time with Him. And spending time with Him will forge your character over a period of time. You'll come into the church, not just to sing, and not just to listen, but to have your character forged. And sometimes it just feels like wasting time. Sometimes you'll open your Bible, and it just feels like wasting time. Sometimes you'll sing songs and listen to sermons, and it just feels like wasting time. But over periods of years, it forges in you a man or a woman of godliness that you can't see. And it changes your mannerisms. And it changes your thinking. And it changes your speaking. And it changes your doing. Until over periods of time, you become imitators of Him as beloved children. As beloved children. Because Jesus came to set you free from an old way of living, from an old way of thinking, from an old way of doing, to become somebody new, to become somebody that God intended from the beginning. A sinner into somebody holy. A sinner into somebody that looks like See, it says in verse 2, walk in love. As Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's a sense in which he said, he's moving into verse 2. And we're bring us all together right here. Walk in love. So in verse 1, I think what he's saying is walk at... <coughs> Walk as a beloved child. In verse 2, he's saying this is what it looks like. Walk as the beloved. You see this? Verse 1, walk as a beloved child. Verse 2, walk as the beloved son walked. Jesus. See, Jesus was the standard. Jesus was the perfect imitation. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the exact imprint of the Father. He is very God of very God. He is the exact 
nature of his father, but he walked in every way that we walked. He suffered in every way that we suffered. He knows everything that we know, and he, wa- know, and he walks in every way that we walk. And he walked our lives, and he walked them in love, brothers and sisters. He walked them in love. And he lived in such a way to set for us both a standard and an example while while giving us the power by which we can do it ourselves. By giving us the power in which we can do, do it ourselves. So notice he says, And Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice love. So he says, walk in love. And I think what he's saying, walk in love. And if you're going to walk in love, just follow after Jesus. If you follow Christ, by following Christ, you're going to walk in love too. But Christ had two great loves, or Christ had two great loves in his, his life. Two great objects of love in his Christ, his life. The church and his father. One greater than the other. One greater than the other. The first great love he had was for his brothers. His brothers. And so he's saying, walk in love by, 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 loving, by loving your brothers as, as Christ loved the brothers. John, John Piper says that uh, the incarnation was the preparation of the nerve endings for the nails of the cross. The standard of walking in love is walking toward death in place of another. That's what Jesus did, isn't it? He walks toward the cross and he marches toward the cross because it is to be my cross and it is to be your cross. And this is the mission of Jesus and this is the intent of Jesus and it is to take my place and it is to take your place. You know, I think this is different than the way we typically come to church. We typically come to church and we say, what can this church do for me? How can this church meet my needs? How can these brothers and these sisters scratch my itches and meet my satisfaction and take care of all of the needs that I have? And I think what Jesus, the standard that he paints for us is quite different. What he says is not, how can all of them meet my needs? But instead, what of their needs can I meet? What can I sacrifice so that their needs can be met? What can I lay on the line so that they can be helped? What can I bring to the table so that the body might be made better, so that they might be strengthened? How can I sacrifice so that the body might be made stronger? The standard of walking in love is looking at the cross. The standard of walking in love is marching at Calvary. There is his greater love. And that is that Jesus didn't live solely for the good of man. He lived primarily for the pleasure of God. He lived primarily for the pleasure of God. You understand this? That the primary reason that Jesus was nailed to the cross, the primary reason that Jesus accepted the the cup that was to come to him, the primary reason that he accepted the mantle of ministry and the difficult misery of the cross was not simply for my good, but for the prayer that he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. It was for the satisfaction of the wrath of his father and the will of God. And he lived for the pleasure of his father. This is exactly when he says a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God when when it says fragrant, it brings to our mind that, that uh, offering that Noah makes after the, co- after the great flood. You remember after the great flood? They've been on the boat all those days, almost a year. They're tired. It stinks. There's been death. They've lost everything that they know of. Nothing is normal. And finally, they see land boat is parked and they come off and you remember the first thing that Noah does? He comes down and he builds an altar and he makes a sacrifice. And you remember what it says? It says that it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A pleasing aroma to the Lord. You know what that's meaning? It means that the Lord accepted his sacrifice. That up on the cross that day, as the, as the Lord Jesus' hands were spread, 
as he died, nailed there for us, as the Lord saw his son's obedience, that even though he felt he was forsaken there, and he cried out in dereliction, that the Lord there, as he saw the Father, as he saw the Son's obedience, and he was slain on the cross, that he saw his obedience, and he was pleased once death had died, and once the Son had followed through. He was pleased with his Son. He had taken pleasure in his Son's willingness to go through take my place and to take your place to prove that the Father was both just and justifier of the wicked. That the Father had not been wicked in passing over the sins of David and the sins of Abraham and the sins of the saints of all of the old in which he had passed over. That he in fact was a just God. And it proved that the Son at the center of his mission placed the Place the glory of his Father above it all. You see, in that, in that we see the mission of Jesus for us. Jesus came, Jesus came so that you and I wouldn't simply gain forgiveness. And Jesus came so that you and I wouldn't simply get VIP passes to a concert that we really weren't supposed to get into. See, I think that our concept of getting into heaven is that we're going to get into heaven and it's like we have VIP passes to a Rolling Stones concert that we weren't really supposed to be at. That, that we, we're going to we have like backstage passes and we're really not supposed to be there. We're going to be like, hey, Jesus, look, we got in. Jesus got us in here and we weren't really supposed to be here. That's not the case at all. That because of the sacrifice of Christ and the obedience of Christ and the coming of Christ and the goodness of Christ and the working of Christ because Jesus lived his life and died his death and was raised to the pleasure of God that Jesus has lived so that now we can live for the pleasure of God. Jesus has made it so that your pleasure that your greatest pleasure can now be God's pleasure. You see, before your pleasure was your own. Your pleasure was yourself. But now he has made it so that God can look down at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant with whom I am well pleased. He has made it so that you can go to Honda and please Him. He has made it so that you can go to school and please Him. He has made it so that you can go to, to practice and please Him. He has made it so that you can go wherever you go and bring pleasure to God. Think of what it means. Now, you, you don't just live as a sinner. You don't just live as someone who is forgiven. You can take your life, wherever it is and whatever it is, and offer it to God as a pleasing aroma. A pleasing aroma that brings satisfaction.